Hello and welcome to the edition podcast. We're nearly through January 2023, which is rather terrifying. And already we're seeing lots of shakeups in the media landscape. Unfortunately, not all of them are positive. There's, we've seen lots of layoffs, which I've written about. Even Spotify had to lay off a decent chunk of people recently, which is all quite shocking. It's, you know, obviously quite a lot linked to the tech world. But today we're going to, if not positive, look to the future and look at how publishers can do things better this year. Um, I'm joined by Adam Timworth, who's a lecturer, a blogger, a journalist. Um, how are you doing, Adam? Nice to have you back on the show. I'm very well, thank you. I'll be even better when I finish my tax return, but that's my job. <laughs> uh, I, I'm in fact my marking, so I've got those two to do as soon as I finish the show. It's the most wonderful time of year, Adam. It is, it um, is. You've just, the day we're talking this, you posted a really interesting piece headlined, Four Things Publishers Should Give Up in 2023. Um, confession, full disclosure, you and I slightly mused on this over a cup of tea uh, not so long ago, and you warned me this was coming, so I booked you on the show. Uh, indeed, we'll come to it, but you did actually give me a little, I got, I get a cameo appearance, a very, very brief cameo appearance in the post. But I thought it was a really interesting kind of, well, you said it was all the things you wanted to get off your chest. Yes. And, it, and it does come across like that, but there's some interesting things. Some of it I agree with you with, some of it I slightly want to challenge you on. So I think, I think that all of these pieces are always designed to generate conversation as much yes. as they are necessarily to be. This is the word from on high. You must obey. Well, listen, you're, you know, you're a very important journalist and academic. We must, you you are handing down from on high. But let, let's dig into it. The first thing you say publishers should, I don't think you say indicate give up entirely, but you want journalists to put less precedent on open rates. Yeah. And a lot of that is Apple's fault. So yes. obviously we're talking this in the context of newsletters. We know lots and lots of publishers are sending lots and lots of newsletters. And obviously one of the things, you know, when they're showing their bosses if it's working, when they're trying to work out themselves when producing content if it's working, is look at the open rate. Quite simply, the percentage of people on the email list who open the email. Yeah. Um, you obviously can't really tell if people scroll all the way down and actually read it, but it's a decent indication, so we thought, of whether people are engaging in your newsletter in some way. Now, you, you blame Apple from 2021 for killing this as any kind of useful metric. Or certainly, you know, it's been sort of the golden, I don't know, it's been the thing that everyone's obsessed over, hasn't it? Am I getting yes. above 40%, 50%, 60%? Aren't I wonderful? And yes, because it's, Apple... It's both... It's both the blessing and the curse of newsletters. Yes. In the sense that you send it out and you love to see uh, open rates... You love to see the open rate go up. You watch people clicking and appreciating it. It's lovely to see. Although the downside, if you spend too much time watching the metrics as it happens live, you see people unsubscribing live, and that's always a, a blow to your ego. You've clearly been following my habits. Um, yes. So you said Apple obviously changed its its email privacy systems. It made a big, big... It was before the sort of app tracking transparency. It changed what was going on in email, and you're yep. prompted to turn this privacy setting on up. Um, and basically, you you say that frankly that's made open rates not that useful because basically Apple counts or any newsletter as essentially opened. Yeah, I, it's contextual, of course. It depends on mm. what percentage of your audience are reading email on Apple devices using Apple's Mail app, because that's really where it applies. So if they're you know using Apple devices but reading Gmail in the browser, for example, it doesn't apply in quite the same way. 
or if they're using Apple devices, be using their work Outlook. Again, it doesn't yeah. apply. But if you have a very significant number of people using Apple devices, using Apple Mail, then basically all of those people look as if they are always opening the um, the email as soon as they get it. You know, whether that's within ten minutes or within an hour, mm-hmm. depending on what whether their email is set to check, because Apple is basically all this email opening is done by something called a tracking pixel, a little tiny image embedded in your email, which when the, when the server, when your email server requests that pe- pixel, um, that's recorded as an open. That's, um, Apple's caching it. So it looks as if you open it once, you open it straight away, and then you never touch it again. Yeah. And obviously lots of users of lots of different websites are using uh, Apple devices. And so this is, this is a thing for publishers, you know, I mean, it will depend across the publisher, but it's quite a significant chunk, as we know, um, that people will be opening using the Apple Mail app. Um, and, and you want basically people to stop obsessing over the raw number and look more at patterns. Yeah, you're, you're looking for patterns of, you know, when the open rate goes up, when the open goes down, because that's only a percentage of the people. Mm. But that's still giving you some indication of, you know, maybe maybe sending late on a Friday afternoon is a great idea because the open rate is down on that one, or maybe it is. And it, those sort of patterns, you know, experimenting around those are, I think, useful. You know, what headlines cause people to open more, what headlines don't. Those sorts of things are all useful indicators you can still get out of open rates. But judging the success or failure of the newsletter just by open rates is a more challenging thing to do these days. Uh, the thing that strikes me about this is is not just the publishers that need to get their heads around this. Because obviously advertisers care deeply, <laughs> one, about the list size that, you know, if you are sponsoring a newsletter, which lots of newsletters like to operate on that model for good mm. reason, if you are sponsoring a newsletter, people care, the advertisers care both obviously about the size of the list and also how many people on that list are opening it. So it's, it's not just the publishers that need to get their head around this. I, I sort of get the impression, actually, that within the industry, and I'm absolutely guilty of this we just don't want to think about it we just want to go oh the open rate is this the list size is this let's all carry on pretending nothing has changed yes i think that there's probably a, a deep amount of truth in that um there's always been a a slight reluctance to look too deeply into things like uh you know how real is the traffic coming to your site uh, how effective is advertising and i think you know as an industry we are sort of um predisposed to slightly burying our head in the sands about these things because there's a worry that the whole house of cards will collapse if we look too deeply however that said if we if things become economically difficult as they are likely to become or seem to be becoming this across this year you mentioned the uh the layoffs at the top of the show including big set of layoffs of vox um yeah vox cnn also you know um, uh, significant places, sadly. Then we might expect advertisers to become a lot more selective about where they put their money. Um, I mean, they become a lot smarter at checking they're actually getting value for money on it. Mm. So that would be an interesting thing to track. It, it will be, but, you know, I think the one thing that you can't really distort is the list size. And also, you can still tell the caliber of a list. Yeah, I mean... The type of list... professionals and industry people or whatever your target audience is you can still tell that uh, you can the caliber of the list you can tell i agree you can goose list size i mean arguably 
Substack might be in the process of doing that right now because it is good email hygiene if you like to do double opt-in where somebody subscribes and they get an email back saying, did you really want to subscribe? Yeah. And they, and when that confirms um, then you are properly opted in, Substack has switched that off entirely. It's now single opt-in. Yeah, across although the list. you do get welcome emails, so you do know pretty quick. You can yeah. pretty you easily can, say, can I've done this by mistake. But it's still just a slightly odd decision to make to um, remove remove that sort of basic list hygiene thing. Also- I used to I used to have in the very early days of my newsletter on Ghost. I used to have single opt in, and it took me about two years to actually clean up the list from all the mm. the uh, the crud that got you know that ended up in there with you know, automated bots and stuff mm. sticking people in. Because your worry is not um, real people being forced subscribed. Generally sure. speaking, your worry is sort of automated systems sticking emails in and basically your your list, your email going out to loads of email accounts that don't really exist or aren't. Sure. I think anything. the nature of Substack does do a pretty good job of preventing that because it's all about writer relationship. And as I say, you do get a welcome email. And I mean, obviously, no one that subscribes to the edition could ever be described as crud. They're all absolutely wonderful. Um so and I think actually Subset does, obviously I'm on Subset, so I'm going to defend it. I think it's a pretty good platform. But I think it does do, or has, and certainly has done so far, a pretty good job at uh, making sure that you can keep uh, a good list. And you also have to remember that it's not particularly in well, Substack's would... benefit. Uh, I mean, I don't want to go too far down this one, but I don't think it is particularly in Substack's benefit to have loads of bots subscribed to this because no. Substack and makes would... its money by people converting to paid. And I would hope that in the background, although I don't know for sure, but I would hope in the background they've got some sort of um, IP checking and sort of, you know, known bad email um, sure, checking yeah. to, to weed weed out I, core subscriptions. Yeah, I know I Beehive does, for example. Yeah, I don't um, know the answer, but as I say, the key thing for Substack is people converting from free to paid. Of and course, so, that's, that's, uh, that's what makes the money. Correct, exactly. So it's not particularly in there. They're not incentivized in any way just to have lots of bots and stuff subscribing to an email list. Um, but anyway, let, let's get back to this discussion on, uh, on you know, open rates and so on. Do you think that also includes, uh, you know, engagement in terms of click-throughs? Because what Apple does doesn't particularly affect that, does it? No, it doesn't, um, which is good. I mean, again, this depends on the rationale behind your newsletter so you say different newsletters have different roles or different business models so is 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 the rationale of your business model to drive traffic towards your site then clearly you know click-through rates are going to be really important if your newsletter is a product in its own right and actually is largely designed to be read within the uh, email app then then you're probably looking at sort of things like churn you know, yes. how many how many how many you acquiring how many are you losing that's more useful than than other things so as always you should fit your analytics to the purpose of to the business model of whatever you're publishing and that applies just as much to email as anything else yeah and of course you know emails that say aggregate really interesting news stories from within an industry will want a higher click through rate than someone than a writer who wants you to just stay and read their weekly yeah, email exactly um moving on the other thing you say and i think this is quite interesting and i'm slightly relieved by it actually is you want us to stop obsessing over keywords yes uh, and i'm pleased about this because 
we've all seen and read content that you can tell is just designed, you put in something on Google and it's just designed to be stuffed with keywords so that you end up going there. It might not answer that, give you the information you want. It might. Uh, it's not particularly well written. It's not particularly nicely produced. It's just a keyword stuffed piece of content. Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised there are people still doing that because keyword stuffing, as in putting too many keywords. Yeah, it doesn't actually work, does it? No, it's been a negative ranking factor for something like uh, probably 15 years at this mm. point. It's a long time anyway. But you say that the, the new thing that we need to go towards is intent, which yes. I really like because that makes it actually useful for trying to find information. By what you mean is if you're writing a piece that in theory answers a question... Yeah. of some or, kind or solves a problem yes or solves a problem or you know gives some insight into a topic in some way that's more important than having you know making sure that you've put the keyword in enough times and spread it out right and all of that kind of thing absolutely yeah I mean, google's ability to semantically parse articles you know goes up by leaps and bounds every year so it doesn't really need i mean you can help explain, yourself explain in layman's terms what you mean by that to work out what the article's about, right. to actually just analyze all the stuff. And, and this use... is presumably as AI and machine learning get better. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, and just as you know, Google's been doing this, what, nearly 25 years. So yeah, one would hope yes. even all the very smart people in there, they're getting much better at that than, you know, when Google started in the late 90s, like everyone else, they just did word counting, keyword density analysis. Mm. But now they're running so much more level of sophistication. They've got so much more awareness of the past history of your site and the sort of things you write about. They can tell what a story is about pretty quickly without you necessarily needing to bang on about making sure all the keywords sure. are, are in there. Yes, there is some competitive advantage in making sure you have used the right keywords in some of the key places, just so it's really obvious to what Google is about. But if you're stuffing loads of keywords in just to make it rank, it just there's no point anymore. And there hasn't been for a long time. But people don't want to let go of that because that feels easier to control than actually what's happening for at least for editorial publishers. Yes. It's a slightly different world if you're selling people shoes or things yeah, like sure. that. Um, uh, and it, do you think editorial publishers have got their head around this and are doing better at it? No. Um, yes, yes, I mean, oh, clearly clearly some are. But I, uh, the big revelation for me when I went uh, self-employed into consultancy rather than being you know, a full-time uh, editorial development person within a company is how unpredictable the levels of knowledge of something are across the industry because mm. you tend to look from the outside and think, oh that newspaper must know all of this and you go in and do a course and you go oh no no okay they really don't know that or even yeah. you know they learn things and then people leave and they sort of lose that knowledge over time which is sometimes a shock when you go into a newspaper you haven't worked with for five years and discover they've actually lost some institutional knowledge in that time so yeah it's it's unevenly spread but the best places are on top of this already. They're already using the sort of tools to think about what are people searching for, um, constructing stuff like this. I mean, uh, Vogue, uh, for example, and Sarah Marshall has been doing this sort of stuff very well. I mean, she's higher up in content us now, but has been doing this sort of stuff very well for some years. Uh, but other places are still slowly fighting their way there. But I think it's this has been going on long enough. There's no excuse right now. And if your SEO people are still coming to you with, as I said, spreadsheets of keywords, you need to rethink what you're doing. Do you do you think this is again as a bit like what we talked about at the top of the show, where we sort of don't really want to know the truth, and we're sort of a bit paring ahead in the sand within journalism? 
I don't think this is journalism's fault this time, actually. Oh, wow. This, this That's is, a nice change. This is the SEO profession's fault because the SEO profession um, has built this whole network of tools which are based on analyzing keywords and things like that. And obviously, those tool providers are very reluctant to give those up until they've got the replacement tools that are much better at interrogating intent. And, you know, some of those are already out there. Answer the Public is one I use quite a lot with clients. So those tools are beginning to emerge. But because of that, the people who are selling keyword-based tools want to keep the discussion about keywords until they have the tools available, which will allow people to dig deep on intent. Keyword, I mean, I'm not completely, to, I'm a bit like open rates, I'm not completely saying you must never think about keywords. Sure. But it's much more, it's much, certainly from a journalistic point of view, it's much simpler now. It's much more about thinking about, okay, who are, what are the people this story about is? What are the places? What are the companies? What are the events? What are the concepts? Have I used those in prominent places on the page? Great. My keywording job is done. But what I need to have thought about, first of all, is what question or what problem is going to bring people to this page? What piece of if information I, do people want? Yeah. And if if I can't articulate that, then actually this is not a great piece for SEO. Then maybe I need to think about optimizing for social or I need to go and butter up the newsletter author and make sure it gets a prominent placement in the sure. newsletter, whatever it might be. Do, my positive on this is actually, does this help drive better pieces of work? you know, better articles because people are not obsessing that every couple of paragraphs they put a key word in, but they're actually writing something more informative, better researched. Yeah, I, at its best, you get a nice virtuous circle here mm. where you're writing pieces that people actually want to read that are constructed in a way that makes them a really good user experience. Um, and then that leads them to share them more on social. So you start picking up stuff from various different angles and you get them. Yeah, But yes, I mean, overall user experience is a growing factor in the Google algorithm yeah. without going too deep and technical. There's something called core web vitals, which has become very important in the ranking algorithm. And that's all just about user experience. How fast does it load? How clear is it to read? And how well designed is it? Those factors are quite important now. Um, talking of virtuous circles, unvirtuous circles, I don't know. Uh, Twitter. I mean, I did a whole show on from with Chris Sutcliffe on media voices being like, oh, well, he he joined me on this show, and we were just like, I think the headline is literally journalists get off Twitter. Yeah. Um, you uh, Chris, write a Chris sim- is a former student, so <laughs> I'm not surprised. And he he and I always, well, not 100. We all always saw things in a very similar way. So yes. I'm not surprised we're coming to the same conclusion. Yes, and I I agreed with that conclusion. Uh, my, this is where my little cameo in your piece comes in. You told me that you had been on Twitter for 16 years and I looked, I had a slight panic attack well, over a cup of tea. Um, because, I, well, I just wanted to check that, you know, the therapy was going okay and, you know, you were being sufficiently looked after. And then to be I fair, looked, I've been through a sort of a, a sort of six or seven year slow withdrawal from Twitter. Yes. I'm, not, I'm less active than I was, once was on there. Well, I I then looked before we started the show, and I've been on since June 2011, so I'm not all that far behind you and probably should also seek out the appropriate help. But um, there definitely is a thing, isn't there, with journalism, where if people are talking about your article on Twitter or the topic you're interested in on Twitter, you you think it's important. And that's not necessarily the case. Well, it, de- it depends where you place importance. And again, like well, all of these people reading the article, 
But actually depend, engaging with it. Yeah, it depends what you're writing about, though. Um, Sorry, so for, for let me people... also rephrase that: people yeah. that are not journalists, other journalists, caring about yeah. your article. Which is tricky because there are communities that are very active on mm. Twitter, and there are communities that aren't. Um, uh, one of the so this is this is a big this is a big one. I don't want to open up too much, but one of the interesting discussions in my household. Um, so you know, I'm a journalist, social media SEO person. Uh, my wife is an immunologist who's a course leader in basic medical science. Uh, during the pandemic, she was somewhat scathing about the sorts of science or science adjacent people that came to dominate the discussion around the virus. Uh, during the pandemic, because most of them are peripheral to the field. Or as she pointed out, if you're a really good, deep and in, in, uh, intensive research scientist who understands this stuff, there's a very high chance that you're not the sort of person who wants to be on Twitter. Yeah, or you had better things to do at that moment. Well, absolutely. Um, but, you know, science, without stereotyping too strongly, uh, you know, biological scientists, you know, hard science researchers don't tend to be the most social <laughs> don't people Don't turn in the, world. the biologists on to me. I'm not, I don't want a row with, you know, they're all lovely, clever Look, people. I, I, I don't once want to, I once went this. to the part, the, the, the work party of my wife's couple no, of employers back. Adam, you're going to get me into trouble. Okay, I'll back away. <laughs> I'll back away. I'll, I'll save you from the. I'll save you from there. But uh, yeah, Twitter. I mean, no social network is representative of the whole community, yeah. the whole world. Twitter. That is even more so of Twitter. If you're into politics, if you're into media, if you're into that sort of stuff, Twitter is the place to be. There's no doubt about it. Mm. And you might even pick up some readership. But across the wider range of subjects that we write about in journalism, you know, Twitter is. You know, there was a recent Nyman Lab piece about it, is a vanishingly small percentage of traffic. You know, most of the big newspapers spend relatively little time worrying about generating traffic from um, Twitter, and particularly with the death of moments, uh, you know, mm. killed off in the big cull um, by Musk. Twitter moments, just for people who don't know, was a curation tool. There was a proper editorial team uh, that was, you know, finding the best, most informative articles even trying to get a balance on a story sometimes if that was required. And that could often help drive traffic. Yeah, and also you could create your own moments. And yes. that sometimes the curation team would then promote them. Yes. So, for example, the Telegraph uh, in the UK used to do very, very well out of moments. Mm. Um, so Dave Knowles and his team were very good at making the most of that platform and before that, Elise. Um, so, yeah, it's okay. But I think the... The two reasons I, I say we need to get off Twitter a little bit is probably the same thing you discussed with Chris, which is it's become this sort of performative trap yes. and we're too busy showing off for each other and busy destroying the reputation of journalism while we do it. But also the fact that for most of us, you know, unless you can palpably say with hand on heart, it is a good source of story leads. It's which it can be. Let's not, of, which let's it, not which diminish it, that. Again, in the right, in the right fields, Absolutely. But not for everybody. But not for everybody and not for every story and not for every subject and every beat. Yeah. I think so that's for right. the right places. I mean, what you have to do is really put your hands on heart and say, are you really getting value out of the platform? And the other thing that's lurking in the background, of course, is that Mr. Musk is quite genuinely driving people away. You can see people leaving. You can see advertisers leaving. There is a risk that what he does will 
essentially destroy the platform. Um, and if you've committed too much time to it, you'll yeah, be stuck behind. It's always worth you know putting a little bit of investment elsewhere, just checking out what the alternatives might be, what might what it might look like afterwards. This is when Adam tries to convince me to start a Mastodon account because I've not bothered so far. Well, I think I think it is worth trying at some point. It, uh, maybe not quite yet. I would say in two, three, maybe six months' time, it'll, the environment will look very different. Interesting. Because a lot of the people who are moving to Mastodon right now are the guys who are going to write the apps that are going to ma- that's going to make the Mastodon experience much yeah. better. Um, um, already, the sort of the rate of Mastodon apps emerging is phenomenal. Um, a lot of the big Twitter apps that got closed down a couple of weeks ago, the, t- the development teams there are looking to basically build replacements of Mastodon. People forget in the sort of the, the, the late 2000s, it was the arrival of the Twitter apps that transformed the Twitter experience for people because it used to be something you either read on the web or got via SMS. Yes. That the, 140, the original 140 character limit was to be slightly less than that of an SMS message so that Twitter could use some of the remaining characters as routing information. And yeah. that's why the original 140 character limit was there. It was because it was delivered via SMS. You used to get, you used to get alerts via text message as well, didn't yes, you? Yes, absolutely. Someone has added, uh, you know, replied to you, tagged you in something. Oh, good days, good times. Um, I, I do, I definitely think, and I'm as guilty of this, if not more so than anyone, that we have definitely in journalism bogged ourselves down in Twitter. Um, but And it has had some positives. I'm not going to be one of those people that dismisses it all and doesn't think there's ever any positives. You can make really good contacts because people follow you on Twitter and you can have private conversations. You can find interesting routes to stories through Twitter. You can promote stories. The traffic's not great, but you can do some promotion of your own work on Twitter. So I'm not, I don't think it has zero value. But yes, I definitely agree with you that we need to all stop obsessing about it in perhaps the way we have done. And sticking with the social media a kind of space, You're also, and this is one, I think the thing I more disagree with you on, actually, of all your points, this is what I most disagree with you on. You're, and you even admit, actually, this is a bit of a controversial uh, one you picked out, was you're less convinced that it's worth spending time with TikTok, journalists spending time on TikToks, um, or at least publishers deploying journalists or specialist video creators uh, to make TikToks for their publication. I don't necessarily agree with you on that. I because think, I think again, there's some caveats in there. There are. I, th- I think. You, I think if you're the problem, the problem with TikTok right now is that the benefits. So there's two. There's two big problems. One of which is the benefits are indirect. So it is, you know, as a platform, it is constructed in such a way it is almost impossible to take the attention you generate there and drive it anywhere else. And every historic platform we've had before. Uh, creators who have built a presence there, and the, the obvious example will be YouTubers, have realized that over time they need to take that audience and build a separate relationship with them elsewhere. So YouTubers do that, and whether that's with setting up their own websites or email lists selling or book deals yeah. or selling merch, all of these things you know, widens their relationship so they're not completely dependent on the original platform. Yeah, that's true. Over time, the platforms have got wise to that. And we've seen the newer generation of platforms from sort of Instagram onwards, really, make it harder and harder for you to take the relationships you build on the platform and move them elsewhere. 
Yeah, I mean, um, Instagram is particularly terrible for linking out. It yes. doesn't even let you do it in the sort of blurb you put under a photograph. It doesn't create a proper no, link. The only places you can do it are in your bio, bio and yeah. in, in Instagram stories. Yes, you there's can a do link it sticker. Yeah, you can so do it in stories. Two but if yeah. you post something, say, I've just started selling this new piece of merch, if you're that type of creator, you can't, in that post, on normal Instagram, actually... Um, link in bio... Exactly. You have to put link in bio, not yes. actually include the link, which is annoying for consumers because they have to do another click. And which is why there's this whole sort of network of sites that generate, that take your single link in bio yes. and turn it into multiple links. The, the thing I, I don't agree with you on TikTok is I think for a younger generation of both publishers slash creators slash users, mm-hmm. it, the, people automatically drive from different places. So I think you can create a video in which you mention your newsletter and users will go to find it i you're right that you can't particularly include a link you can but i just think also it's a very good brand awareness tool so i'm thinking morning brew the washington post did great tiktok videos that raised its awareness to a different of the, that rather old publication in relative terms uh to a younger audience so I think it As might I not say, be direct, but I think you if can you're do a big good publisher, work. If you're a big publisher that can afford that long-term conversion sell, that maybe people are not going to try and convert straight away, but through growing brand awareness, they are likely to um, you know, convert at some point to a more direct relationship with you, then that's fine. So it, I'm not saying if you're the BBC, if you're the Washington Post, if you're the Telegraph, you should give up on your TikTok ambitions. Um, what I am saying is that if you are a very small operation that maybe doesn't have a lot of audience resource, you know, most small publishers mm-hmm. don't have an audience specialist, let alone one for each title, uh, you need to think, you always need to think strategically about where is the greatest reward likely to be. And if you were to say to me, okay, I've only got so much spare time. I've got, you know, about half a day a week. We can devote that to one big project. Should that be setting up a newsletter? Should that be setting up a podcast? Or should that be setting up TikTok? I would say in that case, unless you have a very specific reason, you want to build relationships with the much younger, relatively speaking, cohort, then almost certainly you'd be better off devoting that tiny amount of time you have available to one of the other two rather than TikTok. Podcast is an interesting one because actually there's podcasts I've found via TikTok. I'm not necessarily sure I've subscribed to any of the podcasts themselves. I just enjoy seeing the clips on social media. Yes. And I mean, there's a, there was an interesting piece um, uh, just before Christmas talking about this way, way the, the edges of what a podcast is, is blurring yes. in a, quite an interesting way. So, yeah, it's an interesting. But that's coupled with the fact there is a big question mark a big political question mark hanging yes. over tiktok well, in the I way just, there isn't any other platform that's absolutely true that previous episode very recently with chris stoker walker in which we discussed this uh we actually spent a lot of the discussion talking about elon musk but um we did because chris has written a book on this subject um mm. really delved into the political issues around tiktok and they're only growing we've already seen in the u.s states and high schools and all sorts of things really cracking down on what devices you're allowed tiktok on i think that's only going to increase because of the reasons you cite in your article i.e the link with china yeah and and, the chinese state 
And I suppose we're, we're back in that position. So this time last year, there were lots of sort of nervous discussions about how oh, come yeah, Russia's not really going to invade Ukraine, are they? They did. Yeah. Um, and so we have that. Um, sort is that of a direct, I'm not sure that's a direct comparison, but I understand the point you're making. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there is the same nervousness about China's oft stated you know, desire to reclaim, as they put it, Taiwan. Mm. Yeah. Admittedly, if that ever to happen, the whole tech industry is in a whole world of yeah. Hurt. There's there's all sorts of issues beyond TikTok. If that yes, I mean, not happens, not uh, least uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, which is sort of the was, baseline on which the entire industry is built. Yes, the chips was the first thing I thought of. But yeah. anyway, your piece was your piece was fascinating. Uh, the one thing to and this is the one that really panicked me. It's sort of we've gone full circle because we're coming back to an analytics discussion um, and we won't spend too long because I don't want people to sort of disappear. But um, analytics are important for any publisher. And of course, there's some big changes coming at Google Analytics. Yeah. Uh, we won't get into the technicalities of it, but your argument is we need to get ready for the new version and make sure you have yes. your data in the right place. Well, do you it's think not, It's not even really you... an argument. It's just a fact. Yes. Google, Google Analytics, as we know it. 30 of uh, 30 days yes 30th of june google analytics at the end of the day stops collecting data and google analytics 4 ga4 start is which is already collecting data is the only one that will be collecting data yes so uh, your current analytics if you haven't switched to ga4 stops at the end of june yes uh and yeah publishers obviously i mean i'm sure big publishers are already getting their head around this uh, i need to sort myself out um Adam, thank you so much for delving into all of this. 2023 is going to be a very, very interesting year for publishers. I wonder how many will take on board some of some or all of the things you put in this newsletter. Well, I like to I like to think that the ones who do will be the ones who will thrive. Well, you are a deeply influential figure. Where can people keep up with, uh, you know, your work such as this newsletter? Always the best place to start is my site, which is rejoices in the name of one man and his blog, which is a 20 year old terrible pun on a defunct TV show called One Man and His Dog. Yes. Which seemed uh, like a really good idea in 2003, but becomes very hard to explain to people in Singapore or Malaysia why it's funny. In 2023. Yes. Uh, Well, if it makes you feel better, it still makes me chuckle. I'm obviously at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter. If you're listening here, as I always say, if you're listening in Substack, well, you know where to find the newsletter. It's at theedition.substack.com. You can also listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Do share with friends and colleagues who you think will find this interesting. Um, And I will see you all next week. (laughs) 